You are listening to the Mom and Dad Podcast. A podcast about balance, growth, and navigating through your 20s and 30s. Welcome back to the Mom and Dad Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. I'm really, really excited for this. So Chris is a longtime friend. He is one of the, if you think of the term go-getter, he probably embodies that possibly better than anyone I, I've ever known. And that's that's tall, it's a tall order, but he fills it. So Chris Bentley, he currently works for the U.S. Forest Service, but he has had from his days in college all the way, you know, to where he is now, he's been, he's just, he's a very, very hard worker. Some of his professional experience, he was an intern at the White House where he uh, oversaw onboarding for new staff to the U.S. president. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, He started with the U.S. Forest Service in 2009 as a public affairs specialist. Then he uh, graduated to acting national web manager. And for the past six years, he's been the regional digital media specialist for the northwestern part of the United States. And so... He his he likes to say that he speaks he tells the story of the forest to to help people and you'll hear you'll hear him mention that but to basically help people to remember how great the forest is fall in love with it keep it present in mind so that they'll want to preserve it yeah a cool. low pressure approach to wanting to inspire people to take care of the planet yeah he's very much on the side of if if there's a spectrum for how people motivate others and on one end of the spectrum is like pure guilt trip he's like on the far end of the spectrum the other end which is all about inspiration and i love the way that he he is he does have very strong opinions but the way that he shares them with other people is really from a place of open mindedness and and really just wanting to share and so that's what i've always loved about him and i, I think he has some really good points and that makes him a really good person to talk to about the topic of polarization, which is today's episode topic, um, which is one of the, in my opinion, one of the biggest issues facing the American public today because we're so divided and the polarization is to a point where it's it's causing us to give, you know, hair trigger judgments, subconscious judgments on people because of something we may the see on their social thing. or... Yeah, and we don't take the time to really understand people's arguments or the reasons why they believe what they do. And so I think that this is a timely episode. I'm really, really excited because he ha- he's, he's very, very well researched on this topic. And I'm really excited for people to be able to, to see and learn from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, with all that being said, yeah, let's get into it. Let's do it. Chris, tell us what, what you do for a living. Yeah, so I do digital media for uh, the U.S. Forest Service. I work out of the, uh, the Pacific Northwest region, and that means that I get to play with uh, social media and websites and video production. And bottom line, I, I, I consider myself a storyteller. That's the main focus of my job. I try to tell the story of the forest. I'm sort of a a friend of the Lorax. I speak for the trees, right? So, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. What is the Instagram handle? Uh, for for the Forest Service or? Yeah. 
Um, so it's your Northwest Forest. So it's okay. your NW uh, Forest. Okay. Um, we, uh, we primarily focus on Facebook and Twitter though. And mm -hmm. both of those handles are uh, Forest Service NW. Okay. So. Great. Very cool. I'm super interested how you got into the Forest Service. Did you start out in, in the field or have you always been on the social media end or? Yeah, well, I feel really lucky. The way that I got in is a lot easier than a lot of other uh, forest employees. Uh, my goodness, like the example I always look at is like fish biologists. So many of the fish biologists start out as volunteers and then they land seasonal jobs where they work like maybe six months out of the year for yeah. 10 years. And then maybe after that, after getting their master's degree and after racking in 10, 15 years of real hard experience, they might land a permanent position. Um, so yeah, so my, my track was a lot easier. I, um, I started out through a program that uh, they called the uh, Student Career Education Plan. No, sorry, the, uh, the Student Career Employment uh, uh, Program, so SCEP. Um, and it's basically like a summer internship program where the, I work closely under someone who has a career that I might uh, fit into at some point for a few summers. And the Forest Service helped pay for some of my college and, and graduate work. And then when I graduated with my master's, they offered me a position, a permanent position. And I started on the Mount Hood National Forest, and I've stayed in the Northwest ever since. So, so what is the percentage of people who right out of school get a job? Oh, very small. I, I don't know exactly the numbers, but pretty much the only way that people land permanent jobs right out of college or graduate school is through these programs. Okay. So. Um, now it's called the Pathways Program, mm. and there's like two different tracks that uh, people can go through, but that's really, as far as I can tell, it's pretty much the, the way. That's why, you know, when I, uh, when I go to like job fairs or career, you know, um, panels or whatever, I've been able to go back to my undergrad and graduate schools and sort of talk about how I got my job. I always just so strongly encourage them, pay attention to those programs because it's really the only way that people can land those okay. permanent jobs straight out of school. So, so it's got to be pretty competitive then, I would imagine. Yeah, it, it's really incredibly uh, competitive. Like they might accept, the Forest Service um, might accept, I don't know, a few dozen um or so, you know, a full-time pathway students a year. Wow. Um, you know, and the Forest Service has a, you know, an employee base of about 30,000. So that's a pretty small percentage. I mean, obviously they, they hire a lot of people outside of the agency too, but typically you have to have a lot of experience. And, and just so you know, part of the purpose of this podcast, why we created it was that we know not everyone fits, you know, a, a cookie cutter mold or wants to follow, you know, the same path. And so we always like to hear when someone has chosen a path that's not a little bit off the beaten path, if you will. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, I work pretty strictly in the communications world right now, uh, but like my educational background is more management. I, I majored in industrial psychology, um, organizational behavior, and uh, my graduate work is in uh, public administration. <clears throat> so, you know, I, I think sometimes people just have to get their foot in the door. And, you know, it's a lot easier to move around within the federal government once you've landed a position. Mm-hmm. So, I've had lots of neat opportunities to do short term work assignments within the Forest Service that are out, that have been outside of my regular job description. Mm-hmm. And that's really helped enhance my resume, it's made me more competitive inside the federal government as well as everywhere else. So, uh, I guess if I had one piece of advice for, for your listeners is to, you know, don't, don't pigeonhole yourself. Don't set your mind on just doing one specific thing and holding out for that specific dream position. Because one, uh, that, that perfect, you know, ideal position might not open up anytime soon. And two, often uh, what we think is the ideal position actually changes when we have other experiences mm-hmm. that are unknown unknowns yep. that, that we're never going to discover unless we're open to new opportunities. Right. So sometimes, you know, you sort of just have to uh, say yes to the opportunity and, you know, take advantage of every learning opportunity that you have within the position that you're in right now. And right. yeah, so... I think it's a good place to start to have a goal and to have a occupation, if you will, in this sense of what you want. But like you said, not getting pigeonholed, like it's not going to be a straight, narrow path. Like there's probably going to be things that you may not like and may take you somewhere else and do like and take you another place. So um, yeah, that's really great advice. Yeah, and that's that's actually been like a recurring theme on this podcast. Every time we we, we interview someone, it, it's you know do something and then mm-hmm. figure out if you like it or if it works for you, and then let it take you to other doors that it'll open. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. You echoed that. Yeah, and it seems like you know almost as important as having the skill set for that dream job. It's almost as important, if not more important, that you build friendships uh, built on kindness and hard work um, uh, so that the people that you're working with rally around you so that they, you know, open doors for you. Mm-hmm. Um, not because you, you convince them that you're the best person or whatever, but because they like you, <laughs> you know, I think often overlooked is just the like factor. Like that, yeah. that's what opens doors more than anything is. Yeah. Do I like you? Unlikable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> are you, yeah. Are you a good person? Yeah. Can you get, a, can you get the job done? Yeah. Yep. Do good work and be kind. That's kind of my mantra. Just, I love it. Yeah. It's opened up all kinds of doors. So yeah, no, I love it. I love that. <laughs> so I, we've kind of already touched on this, but was there something speaking of, you know, letting yourself sort of be led from one opportunity to the next what what made you choose or, or start to to take that program in college that eventually landed you in the Forest Service? 
Yeah, so um, I, I think I've always had a public service ethic uh, from as early, I still remember, I think I was like eight or nine, and uh, my parents took me and my, uh, my siblings to a public meeting was something related to land management in, in my hometown of Ogden. And I, I remember I, I got really uh, fired up and there was a, a public comment time and I stood up and I gave my piece. And I think it's interesting. Um, kids don't tend to have the, um, the kind of uh, disillusionment that adults develop. Yeah. Uh, I remember being, you know, that young age and expecting full heartedly that uh, that the mayor was going to take my advice seriously and that he would consider my advice, uh, you know, the best advice <laughs> and that he would implement my my suggestion. Um, and, you know, I I think that, you know, obviously I recognize that as being naive now. But um, I think that, that that desire to make communities better, uh, that desire to have the people around me be successful and realize how important it is that we have good governments, that we have you know, uh, good policies and programs in place um, that, uh, that citizens can uh, tap into. I just recognize how important that was. And so when I was uh, going through my undergrad, I, I got my undergrad at Weber State. Uh, Weber State, Weber State, great, 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 right? There you go. <laughs> um, go Weber. Now, um, I, I still have a lot of really great connections to Weber. Um, Weber offered a lot of great opportunities, but um, because of the way that Weber State was set up, I was sort of able to do anything that I wanted um, if I was willing to put in some work. So I, I was the president of the environmental club. I was uh, the vice president of, uh, of Ledge Affairs. So I was over the student senate, and um, you know I had all of these great opportunities to learn how government worked. I was not a political science major. I only took like one or two political science classes, uh, but through all of these extracurricular activities, I sort of navigated my way towards that. And um, the thing that actually led me to my career path in, in the federal government was, again, just uh, serendipitous, but through the environmental club, um, I found out about a conference that was geared around uh, mass transit and how communities can embrace and incorporate greater transit-oriented development. And, uh, and the conference was being held in San Francisco and I was able to get a, a scholarship to go. And I interacted with lots of public sector employees that were geared around transit. And I started hearing this this master's of public administration. What, what's that about? I, I had never heard of an MPA. Mm. Uh, and I, I was like a junior or senior in college, and I'd never heard of an MPA. But I realized, gosh, all these people have jobs that I want, <laughs> that I'm so interested in, and they seem to have this degree. So maybe I should look into that. 
And I ended up, you know, getting a, a really great um, fellowship to Indiana University's uh, School of Public and Environmental Affairs, their master's program in uh, public administration. And, uh, you know, again, opened up all kinds of doors. And in the meantime, I heard about this uh, fellowship through the Forest Service and didn't really look back ever since. It is funny, though, to think about, you know, as a kid, you know, Ogden is surrounded by Forest Service land. Uh Like the whole eastern hillside and beyond is basically Forest Service land. Mm -hmm. You have the the Wasatch Cashuenta National Forest that hugs Ogden Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much all all the way around. And, um, And I went camping a lot as a kid. I went hiking. But I didn't really associate those areas with the Forest Service until I started working for them. Interesting. So, yeah, but um, now I definitely appreciate uh, all of those great memories of camping and you know roasting marshmallows and things on Forest Service land. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, and it's something that I've always admired about you, um, if I may flatter you slightly, is just your you mentioned you could do whatever you wanted if you were willing to put the work in and you've never shied away from, from doing the, you know, doing the extra work to get what you want. And I feel like that is maybe something that the rising generation could take a page from your book with. Um, where, where did that, where did that drive come from or, or that, that drive to just always be willing to put that work in? Well, thanks. <laughs> Uh, that's very kind of you to say, um, you know, I, uh, (laughs) I wouldn't recommend that everybody uh, go through this, but I, I had uh, a brain injury when I was younger. I, I think about, um, when, uh, when I was a kid, I was kind of a lazy kid, to be honest. I, and I, I don't know, I think that the most kids sort of moan about doing, yard work or whatever. I mean, I don't, I don't know very many kids that, you know, leap to the chance of (laughs) of mowing the lawn when they're eight years old, but you know, I, I knew what I was good at and I sort of shied away from doing harder things that I wasn't good at. And, uh, like I was good at baseball. So I, I play baseball and I didn't play soccer because I wasn't very good at soccer, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, (laughs) but, um, but, you know, I, I had that brain injury and I realized suddenly that things that used to be really easy for me, they weren't quite as easy anymore. Uh-huh. And, and it, it dawned on me that if I wanted to be successful, I'd have to work a little bit. And that was a new thing for me. And, and I think through that and through the years of hard work of therapy and, you know, just relearning things. I developed some discipline, uh, and I honestly think more than anything, uh, discipline is sort of the, the secret sauce to achieving what we want to achieve in life, uh, because people can have the best ideas in the world, people can have the best novel idea, but unless people are going to sit down every day and type out some words, even when we don't want to, or... You know, it's the same with diets and, you know, uh, developing entrepreneurial activities and things like that. Most things that are worthwhile don't come easily. (laughs) 
and you can be as brilliant as you want uh, want to think you are without that discipline it's it's not gonna not gonna necessarily come not gonna land in your lap so yeah so i'm actually really grateful for that experience and then i'm also really grateful for my parents because you know i i grumbled a lot about having to weed in the summers and and having to uh, every saturday the i always dreaded saturday because that was the day when we had to clean the house and all that but now i have to realize gosh it's just a part of me now just you just put in the work so yeah and i think discipline maybe it comes naturally to some people but i feel like it's something that we have to teach ourselves because i think when you can look at someone and be like wow they wrote a book like i could never do that you almost think of it as something that just came naturally to them but really people can do it and like you said it's not going to be easy but practicing that discipline is going to be something that's going to take us farther than than where we would be without it really that's the key yeah yeah and i i think about in a systemic way of thinking right so if if we build self-perpetuating practices where at the beginning it might be incredibly hard the last thing we might want to do is to you know get on that treadmill or to sit down to type those words when no words are coming when you have to crank out words for your manuscript or you know whatever whatever your goal might be but if if you just tough it out for a couple of days it's going to get a little bit easier mm -hmm. And then if it gets a little bit easier, then it's go you're going to be even more likely to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's going to make it even more likely you're going to do it. So mm -hmm. it becomes a virtuous circle. That's what I always look for. It's like if when I'm starting on a, on a new path or when I'm trying something new, I sort of anticipate that it's going to be really hard. And some days it's just going to be lousy. And I just sort of put that in the bank. I know it's going to be like that. Yeah. And so but i also know that if i tough it out for just a couple of days it's going to be a little bit easier and you know and little by little it's going to become more natural until it becomes a a habit right and yeah like i i don't know if you've looked into the, the book like the power of habit but um that that book really changed my my whole thinking on it's like gosh well I have all kinds of habits that I'd like to do, and it's never going to be easier to build that than it is today. So, so what sort of habits do I want to start? Yeah. yeah. So. No, I've, I've, I've flirted with starting that book many times, but I always, there's, it's always lower on my list than the ones that I, I just got to yeah. get to it. <laughs> you know what the, the best advice that I got uh, on, on starting a manuscript or sticking with a manuscript is if, if it's too hard to think about, oh, I have to write 85,000 words eventually, instead of thinking about that, just sit down to, to write. You don't even have to type anything, just sit down to write every day. Just commit to doing that. And then once you've done that, once you've, uh, once you've sat down, I mean, it's like, well, why wouldn't I just type out some words? I'm already sitting down at the computer yeah so you type out something 
And then once you've sort of gotten used to doing that, then you can think, oh, okay, well, I've already built that habit. So maybe I could build a habit of typing 500 words a day. Yeah. So, yeah. I love it. Yeah, just this, the steady, consistent snowball effect of just yeah. a little bit more, a little bit more. Habits, habits are, are one of my, uh, I love geeking out about habits. So. Oh, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think habits is such an interesting topic and yeah. really it's what makes our life. Habits are our choices yeah. and our choices are our life. So yeah. Yeah. For better, or for worse. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, Cause if, yeah. You don't, if you don't, uh, one of the things that always sticks with me is um, a book called as a man thinketh. Mm, yeah. yeah. If you don't tend your garden, which is in, you know, a metaphor for your mind, weeds will come in and weeds don't yeah. take any effort to maintain. And that's, I've always maintained that in my head where it's like, I have to be diligent with yeah. what I let grow in my, you know, my, my brain garden, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, something will grow there. So yep. yeah. yeah. Good or you, bad. Yep. yep. Exactly. <laughs> cool. So I guess coming back to the, to the forest service now, you know, being in it for, for however many years you've been in it, what do you find most fulfilling about it? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that I really appreciate about my job and, and the agency, the Forest Service in general. I, I just love the mission. The mission really drives me a lot. You know, it's, uh, you know, caring for the land and serving people. That, that connection between, you know, natural lands, protecting the land, and also realizing that people need to interact with that land. So that sort of conservation ethic, you know, sometimes we talk about preservation versus conservation, and I think we need both, but um, you know, the, the concept of conservation really resonates for me. Um, the idea of the best way of protecting land is by uh, helping people build strong connections to the land, you know, have people care about the land so they naturally want to protect the land. Mm -hmm. And it's so fun to have my job because I get to, like I say, I, I'm able to tell the story of the forest. So I, I, in a real sense, I get to help build connections for people by exposing them to new opportunities to explore and reach out to audiences and and demographics that maybe haven't traditionally connected to the force in the past you know to help them connect now and that's just so thrilling for me to see people who haven't connected to these beautiful lands uh, connect to it so that's one thing. Another is the people, um, the relationships I've been able to build with the coworkers. I, anytime I'm feeling down on myself or wondering why I'm working for the agency that I'm working for, all it takes is for me to tag along with a fish biologist for a day <laughs> and just seeing how totally thrilled they are with their job and just realizing what cool work they're doing and to realize I get to tell that story. 
like, oh my goodness, how could I ever complain about going into work? It's like, yeah, yeah it's pretty awesome. And I think that there's, there's obviously two ways to, to approach conservation and, and the way you're describing, I think is so much more effective than trying to guilt trip people into, you know, the climate change and you need to, you need to change because the world's going to be dead and it's all your fault. You know, like there's that, that sort of um, way of approaching it. And then there's the, Hey, why don't you just come out of the woods and see what it's like? And then you maybe want to preserve this a little bit more. And I, I think yeah. that resonates a lot more naturally. Absolutely. You know, um, the example I love uh, to, uh, to, to use about that is like um, elk hunters. Mm -hmm. um, they are some of the greatest advocates of conservation because they realize that unless the land is protected and public lands be, you know, uh, well maintained, there won't be any elk for them to hunt. And, and that's different than the hardcore environmentalists who, you know, like seventh level vegan you know, <laughs> or whatever, you know, um, uh, that would never even think about hunting anything. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think there's a place for, for that, uh, that sort of mindset too. I think it takes all kinds um, to, you know, to help our society move forward. But I, I absolutely, uh, absolutely do not um, downplay people's contribution, you know, whatever they, their background. I much prefer like Wendell Berry's, you know, belief, the, the great poet and naturalist and, and farmer who just believed that he believes if, you know, if you're doing anything, if you're trying to move in the right direction, then you're on the winning team. You're on the right side, and it. yeah, everybody's in a different place when it comes to conservation and and every every other policy area. Yeah, and rather than criticizing people for not being at a certain level, we should uh, we should celebrate small victories. Uh, we should celebrate uh, the good work that people are doing already. And I mean, I, I know psychology well enough. My mom is a clinical psychologist and I minored in psychology and, you know, my, my uh, master's degree was focused on uh, public organizations and how organizations work and things. People are never going to be motivated to make positive changes when all that they're getting is guilt tripped and uh, criticism. That, that, that's just is not going to lead to lasting change. The thing that actually leads to lasting change is uh, positive reinforcement. Uh, and that positive reinforcement has to come from celebrating those small victories. No, I yes. love that. And, and that's a pretty good segue into the main point of our, our, our talk tonight. So, and, and I've always noticed this about you that you've always been you know, aware of social issues. And you talked about, you know, how that sort of was sparked in that meeting that you went to as a kid with, you know, before you became, you developed the disillusionment that we have as adults. But it seems to me that working in the forest service, even though it doesn't seem like the other branches of government, you're, the motivation to go into that was as, as much driven by, you know, civic service as you know anything else would you say that's been the main driver of you wanting to you know serve other people in in other capacities of government 
Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. You know, I, I knew that I wanted to work somewhere within the natural resource world. And in, you know, looking at the mission of the various natural resource managing agencies, I think that the, uh, the Forest Service was a natural fit for me. And, you know, the Forest Service's mission is very hard. And I don't think that we'll ever achieve, you know, 100% of what we're striving to do. Because the, the goal is to do the greatest good for the greatest number on the long run, uh, which means that always changes. Mm -hmm. uh, people need different things at different times. And the people change, too. You know, America is different today than it was 100 years ago demographically, socially, just so the Forest Service has had to change with that. But that's a that's an exciting challenge for me. And I I like that intersection between humans and natural lands. And I don't think that I would be I don't think that I would feel quite as fulfilled if I was working in an agency that was exclusively interested in preservation or you know exclusively interested in extracting natural resources the forest service sort of deals with everything they deal with mining claims as well as wilderness uh wilderness areas and you know they're just as interested in preserving wild and scenic rivers as they are maintaining trails so that mountain bikers can have a good experience on the trail. And those, those two interests sometimes, you know, conflict, mm -hmm. but, you know, but we, we move forward trying to do the greatest good. It seems that that has sort of influenced your view of politics in general, really. Um, just that, you know, you're having to balance, you know, the mount, mountain biking, mountain bikers desires with, you know, balancing the preservationist desires. And I think that empathy that you've developed has, has been helpful. And so maybe if we could switch gears into the topic of polarization, you know, around just with everything that we've talked about thus far as a backdrop, maybe you could just explain sort of the definition of polarization um, for, you know, those that are listening that may not know. Yeah, so I guess in its most basic definition, you know, polarization is is when you have a widening gulf between two poles. Mm -hmm. That's basically what it means. And in in the case of uh, political polarization, we're talking about that distance between those poles getting wider and wider. And that's really dangerous, I think, for American politics, because our, our whole political system is built on compromise. You know, no, no party is ever going to get exactly what they want long term. So that means that, that both parties, both major parties, have to come to some compromises to have long term progression. But what we've seen over the last several decades is this, this weird uh, phenomenon where we've moved into this uh, area where parties are only interested in winning it at all costs. And because of that, 
the pendulum has been swinging from one party to the next every couple of election cycles. And when one party is in power, they undo the, uh, the work of the previous party. And then when the pendulum swings back, the same thing happens over and over again. And I think that for the last few decades, actually, I think that our political progression has really been stagnated because of that. Um, and that's pretty alarming. And I, I think about, uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about the systemic self-perpetuating cycles or self-perpetuating systems. And I, I see polarization as being one of those, being a self-perpetuating system, because as it is, we are pretty polarized and we're becoming more and more polarized. And so the candidates for office, they run on platforms that are more extreme than they used to be so that they get the party ticket because the parties expect their candidates to embrace fully their platforms, even though the majority of Americans aren't that extreme on either poll. And since the candidates that win, that get the, uh, the endorsements from those major parties, tend to be the more extreme candidates, those are the candidates that uh, the, uh, the American people see on TV and debates. Those are the people that they have the chance to vote for. They're the people that they get to rally behind whatever party they might believe in. And so we buy into the platforms that these candidates put forth because they're the only voices that we're hearing. And, you know, the reality is that Americans today don't have time to do huge research projects on each candidate to decide, you know, what candidate to endorse. And it's, it's unfortunate, but we don't have very much diversity when it comes to the, the candidates that are put forth. And so, you know, people consider themselves patriotic if they vote. And if we look at the, uh, the percentages, I'd say that they are pretty patriotic because <laughs> we're, we're approaching next year as a midterm election. And typically midterm elections the tur uh, voting turnout is dismal, like 20, 30% of the electorate voting. And so if that's, if that's what, you know, political activism is in America, and if those are the only candidates that we're seeing, then those are the only voices we're going to hear. So those are the people that are going to win. And so the parties are going to think, well, we need to be even more extreme so that we can rally our base even more until, you know, there's just such a huge uh, gulf like there is today between the two parties where there's no reason for the parties to compromise. They'll just fight and, and quarrel uh, until it's their turn to have power. Yeah. And that's, I think that's so interesting the way that you put it, because it, it, it lays it out so clearly like what is happening around us. You see it happening and obviously social media plays a big part in that. And we've spoken about that in the past. Yeah. Um, but I remember you, you told you know, one time when we were having a conversation about this, you, you mentioned that, you know, as, as recently as like the fifties and sixties people, it wasn't uncommon for people to vote a split ticket where they wouldn't mm -hmm. vote 
all for one side or the other. Yeah. I, I think that that's a, a pretty un, unknown reality. Uh, I think that most Americans assume that the parties were like this, you know, for time and immemorial, that there, there were always these conflicts and, and every election was always so heavily contested. And yeah, I mean, elections have been fierce uh, throughout American history, but um, the platforms have had a lot more in common than they do today. And you're absolutely right. Uh, 50s, 60s, it was more likely, actually more people would be more likely to split a ticket, either vote for a governor who, who shares their party and vote for a president or a congressional seat that was uh, the, uh, the opposite party. And that was very common. In fact, there, there was lots of political science research that was done in the 60s and early 70s where some theorists uh, warned that unless the parties became more different, there would be no reason for parties uh, uh, at all because they're not serving any purpose. People are voting you know, for whoever they want, regardless of the party. And so some, some advocates actually were promoting the idea of adding more polarization just so there would be more difference between the parties just because they were so similar. And there were a couple of key issues. And then there were some, uh, there were a couple of pretty major economic realities that hit America that I think started to change that. And, you know, I, I kind of, the, the way I sort of picture the impact of a self-perpetuating cycle is hiking with a pebble in your shoe, okay? So for the first mile or so, maybe, you notice the pebble, it's sort of annoying, but it isn't necessarily very painful. Uh, maybe you're able to carry on a conversation so you sort of forget about it most of the time. But after, you know, like mile three or four, you start noticing that pebble a whole lot more. And, you know, it starts to, starts to cause some, some lacerations in, uh, on your feet. Maybe a blister starts to form. Maybe if you're uh, doing a, an extensive hike, maybe by mile eight or nine, that blister is burst and you're in serious trouble because you know you have to hike the, the whole way back. And this time you have no way of, of ignoring that now festering blister that was caused by that little a pebble that at first you didn't even notice, right? So I think that small differences can lead to huge, huge swaying differences if they're given enough time and enough of a nudge. And I think that's exactly what's happened to American politics over the last 50 years. There were a couple of big phenomena that definitely encouraged us down this track, but we definitely didn't need to stick on this path. And I think, you know, if there's one thing that I can drive home is that the way things are is not the way that it's been, and it's not the way that it has to be. Things can improve. Yeah, I think it's important to know, especially that this is not the way that things have always been. 
No. These things happen in cycles. Like if you look at the, the, the American founding, you know, the, the Republicans and the, the Federalists were very, very similar to today. But then, you know, like you say, by the 50s, things were, people were even advocating for more polarization. And so, you know, it's, it's, I think it's so important to, to note that things have not always been this way because people tend to think, well, this is the way that I, I have to show my, my patriotism or, you know, what, whatever moves them. Yeah, I think that it's impossible to talk about polarization without talking about individualistic uh, nature or the individualistic nature of our country now, because I think the two go right hand in hand. And right at the same time, when America was slowly and, you know, gently moving towards greater polarization, it was right at the same time when America was becoming more individualistic. So up until the mid to late 60s, when John F. Kennedy gave his famous speech, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, you know, ask us you can do for your country, right? You know, that, that concept, that was not a radical concept at all. Republicans and Democrats both agreed with that ethic almost completely. People believed in the common good. People believed that, that their neighborhoods were better when they worked together, crossed political divides. People served on PTAs and Elks clubs and Lions clubs and Rotary clubs and bowling clubs and things with people with different political affiliations. And I think that what, what made that work was the fact that one, people had that common good ethic, believing that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and that, that individuals are better served when, when they serve others, right? That, that kind of concept that individual rights are important, but they're only served well when we care about the rights and opportunities of all, all Americans. But the other, other thing is that people had greater context of each other. We understood that people were so much more than their political affiliation. And now, I, I, I don't like to demonize social media. I mean, I, I, I deal with social media all day, and I guess I'm as much of an expert in social media as just about anybody. I mean, I've, I've, I've been the major contributor of a federal agency uh, social media account for 12 years. So I definitely, you know, see the strengths and drawbacks to social media. But social media is just a tool. It's a communication tool. And like any communication tool, it can be used for good or it can be used really, really poorly. And one problem that social media has really done us wrong is it's given us so many opportunities to see people as just one thing. We see someone post something against Trump and we assume all kinds of things that might be totally wrong. Or... On the opposite side, if someone is saying anything against Joe Biden, uh, we assume all kinds of things that are totally unfair. 
And, you know, a lot of people even unfriend family and long-term relationship, people that they've had for years and years relationships with, they unfriend them because of one piece of who they are. And I think that's because people have become so individualistic and they've latched onto these tools that have shown them how easy it is to remove anybody who disagrees with us in any way. Um, and I, I just think that that's, <laughs> obviously it's not serving us well, but I think, I think that that's um, perhaps uh, the greatest medicine that we can take too. I, um, I think that perhaps one of the greatest things that the average citizen uh, can do to combat the polarization, combat this lonely place where we are right now, where we're not hearing so many of the valuable voices that we need to hear. I think the one of the best things that we can do is get to know people that we don't uh, naturally gravitate to. You know, if, if, if you have a neighbor who you know has a different political view than you, don't just, you know, um, make the beeline to your car when you see them mowing their lawn, you know, uh, stop and say hi, try to get to know them. If, if you have the opportunity to serve at your local elementary school, do it and don't choose to leave that, that volunteer opportunity just because you find out that someone might have a different political view than you get involved in and in local politics. I think about the the old adage that all politics are local. Mm -hmm. And and I think, you know, some people sort of poo-poo that and say, well, yeah, sure. But the important stuff is at the national level. But really, if you think about the things that actually impact us day to day, it's generally not the high national level policy changes that really make the biggest impact on our lives. It's things like, well, uh, will my trash be picked up uh, once a week or every other week? Will my city offer leaf cleanup this year or, or not? Will my city turn on the secondary water in May or will they hold out until July? You know, will, will the police force have uh, a dozen new police officers on the street? or will they have a dozen fewer? Those are the sorts of decisions that average citizens can have a lot of influence over. And it's sort of like my, uh, my message about Weber State, you know, you can do anything if you're willing to put in a little bit of work. Uh, volunteering uh, for, uh, for city uh, government is exactly like that. There are opportunities for anybody to serve on a city committee or a county committee. I guarantee there are positions that, uh, that those committees are begging people to join that have a lot of imp impact on your lives that you don't have to have you know, vast qualifications or vast experience to serve in. Really, the only qualification is show up and do the work <laughs> and it's and amazing care. And care. yeah and care exactly and care i think i think that's that's really the the biggest uh 
the the biggest thing that people can do. Yeah, and I, I that I think is so crucial because it, it plays into your first bit of advice, which is talk to people, get to know people. And by getting involved, you not only get to know people that have probably differing views from yourself, but also makes you a more it gives you a better perspective on how to then take that back to your, your neighborhood or your street. And exactly. That, that that's so needed to, to get away from this, this isolation and this um, one dimensional labeling that we were, we engage in with, you know, social media or, or what you described where we don't, we're not interacting with people the way that we, we should, or the way that it's natural than the way that, is three-dimensional and lets us get to know people. Yeah. I think that that's lacking more than anything. It's just, just, just getting out of our bubble, you know, and, and actually learning, you know, seeing that people aren't evil. And, and it reminds me a lot of like the Rwandan genocide. They used radio to, you know, to propagate these completely false narratives about the opposing, the opposing tribe and it was so much so that they would they would do things as crazy as I think they even talked about the the Tutsis. I can't remember which side, um, but they have horns like they're devils, and they would say these things, and people became so afraid of the opposing side that they, you know, they wouldn't they didn't want to be anywhere near them. And so I it, I think it's more subtle today, but it's the same sort of thing that happens where where it's just a one dimensional. Oh, they posted. They're, you know, something about Trump. Oh, they're this type of person. And therefore I need to be afraid of them. Yeah. You know, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Something that came right to mind is, um, you know, I, I think that everybody uh, likes being right. I mean, I think that's a human nature thing. It's just, uh, it's just a part of our DNA. It's, you know, we like being right. And I think that's, that's probably because we feel safer when we when we feel confident that we're moving in the right direction you know when we were hunters and gatherers maybe you know it was it was a lot better to know that that dinner was uh was uh was close and that we would be able to eat tonight you know and so having that confidence was really important um but today i think that uh it can get us into trouble sometimes because uh i think um something that it's really been driven home to me in so many instances over the last several years is the fact that I don't have everything figured out. I, and no one does. Mm -hmm. So from the smartest people, uh, the most uh, educated people, they, they don't have everything figured out. And it's interesting, you know, there, there've been interesting studies where, where they've studied people's, certainty that they're right and and they've correlated that with how firmly they hold true to that and so they they've actually um they've, they've done studies where the the people know that they're wrong but they've still stuck to their guns and and that correlation is the strongest when when people are most sure about their their conviction so in in a way so the people that are the most wrong are the most sure that they're right. I've always loved, you know, uh, the quote from Emerson that, you know, everybody I meet is my better in some way, you know, in that I learn of him. Um, 
and and I, I can't say that I'm 100% successful at this, but since I can control my social media presence now, I've really made it a point to try to, to look at it from that lens um, and try to give instead of have this hidden agenda. <laughs> and I think that that old mindset that you had is so common today. Yeah. People are just so hung up on what they believe is true, which is fine. Like they can have their beliefs and they can do that, but they, they need to accept and listen to other people and they need to be able to say to themselves like, okay, I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm wrong here and that's okay. And I can learn new information and I can change my mind. Even when, even when we're quite certain that we're right, um, you know, like about facts and figures, you know, well-established facts. Sometimes uh -huh. there's even questions about that today. Um, and even in that situation, if, if we give space for curiosity about, I wonder why they believe that. Mm -hmm. And if we're genuine in that, if we're not being judgmental, if we're, I, I wonder, it seems like they're really, they really believe that. Mm -hmm. I wonder why. We can even we, we can even live in that space, and that's so much healthier than saying, "Well, that person is just stupid." Yeah, you know. Yep. I think just to to wrap up, this has been awesome, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, do you have any, I guess, any last tidbits or things that you feel are important to share before we before we wrap up? I think that. By and large, people are good. Uh, people are striving to do their very best. Uh, I think that's important to remember too, that no one wakes up in the morning uh, determined to ruin someone else's day or be a jerk or you know, treat their kids badly or you know, yell at their coworkers or you know, slam their brakes uh, in traffic. So I think that one thing that we need to we need to give each other is we have to give each other enough grace. Um, we have to give people enough benefit of the doubt to realize that just like you know I don't have everything figured out, no one else does, and that means that when I see someone in the line in the grocery store ahead of me who might not be taking care of their kid the way that I wish they would. There's probably dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, explanations that I have no conception of mm -hmm. as to why they're, they're doing it the way they're doing it. And so that, that also gives me hope because if, if I give other people grace, then it gives me greater hope that other people will return the favor mm -hmm. because I, I definitely need as much grace as I can get, I think. Um, do. Yeah, there's this psychological phenomenon uh, where where humans like to blame on internal faults for why people do what they do, mm -hmm. and we like to externalize failings in ourselves. So the reason why we're late to work is because there was traffic. Why our coworker is late is because they're unreliable and. Uh, and they don't really care about the business, right? That's sort of the classic example. 
but obviously both can't be true, <laughs> right? And so I think that's such a classic example of, of what we need to get out of. And, you know, that might be our natural tendency, but we get to choose what happens next to give people the benefit of the doubt. Well, thank you so much, Chris. That, yeah, that thank was you for awesome. your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for thinking of me. And yeah, I, I wish you all the best with this uh, this podcast. No, thank yeah. you. Yeah, I know we won't talk about it now, but just knowing that it's on the horizon, um, your the title of your soon-to-be-released book. Yeah, so the, the working title right now is uh, uh, Repossessed. And it's the first of a three-part saga. So, cool. Oh yeah, we'll have to have you back on when that's out to the public. I'm excited oh, about that. Thank you so much. Yeah, look forward to it. <laughs>